Reflections on the Poetry of T.S. Eliot The Early Poems by Gil Bailey Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 2 We're operating under an overall theme for the, for the bulk of this year, probably the, the entirety of this year. The overall theme being an apocalypse the children can live with. We may go weeks at a time without explicitly talking about the apocalypse, but the overall theme will, will sort of be in the background at least. The word apocalypse means unveiling. It, uh, it's a genre of ancient literature. The primary biblical uh, documents in the genre are uh, Book of Daniel, Book of Revelation, parts of the Book of Ezekiel, and other minor pieces. So it's a literary genre. But the the word itself, the Greek word for uh, unveiling, in the sense of uh, removing the the delusional screen that keeps us from seeing what is. And uh, Northrop Fry is the first person to awaken me to the importance of the apocalyptic literature by saying that it is the summation of the entire biblical uh, agenda. And as you know from uh, looking around, it is widely misunderstood either hailed as, you know, what for something that it really isn't, or rejected because of its defenders. So what we want to do, in a way, is, as the year goes on, is to rehabilitate apocalyptic and and come to understand it in a deeper way and in a more important way. I want to introduce the apocalyptic theme with T.S. Eliot. Arguably, the most quoted or memorable line in all of Eliot is the one in the at the conclusion of The Hollow Men. It goes like this. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. Not with a bang, but a whimper. One wouldn't have to be sticking one's neck out to call that an apocalyptic passage. Uh, but it's an ap- apocalyptic passage, passage with a difference. If the apocalypse in the standard biblical forms that we have it implies that the veil that separates us, the, the delusional or mystification veil that keeps us from being in touch with reality, if the apocalypse, uh, the ancient apocalyptic literature implies that that veil will have to be snatched away or ripped away uh, or implies some kind of assertive, aggressive, violent uh, breakthrough, Brief Eliot passage implies something more gradual, something that is not so much a an act of aggression or assertion or violence as it is an act of apperception, something much more subtle, something that requires something in the subject. Now, admittedly, Eliot is talking about some other things in The Hollow Men, and we'll get to that in a few weeks, but uh, what I'm suggesting is that implicit in Eliot's life, as well as in his work, is the breaking down of the standard uh, paradigm, the standard screen that imposes itself between us and reality by a subtle developing of one's sensibilities. As Jung has pointed out, uh, when we talk about the end of the world, what we're talking about is the end of a world view. Now, it's possible that a world view will be stubborn enough and recalcitrant enough in the face of its own demise to take the natural world down with it. And then you have, then you have the literal apocalyptic uh, features. But the theme of the apocalypse has to do with the collapse of a paradigm or of a world view. And Eliot is introducing language that says it might happen more slowly and more gradually. So I would, just to keep in touch with both Eliot and the biblical tradition, the whole tradition, try to keep in touch with as much of the tradition as we can, you'd say that on the other side of that screen is what Jesus calls a kingdom. It's it's a different experience. It's It's not something that happens someplace else. In the Gospel of, the Apocryphal Gospel of Thomas, the God, the the apostles say, when will the kingdom come? Jesus says, the kingdom, come will not, the kingdom will not come by expectation. It's spread out over the face of the earth and men do not see it. 
So that's on the other side of the apocalyptic experience. And Eliot is suggesting an apocalypse that, that comes into being by the gradual development of the apperception. That is to say, we begin to participate in it, partly because we've taken the trouble to awaken our perceptions, and partly because the veil itself is wearing thin. Let's not take too much credit. Had not the veil worn thin, neither you nor I nor T.S. Eliot would be making a whole lot of progress. So part of it has to do with the wearing thin of the veil, and the other part of it has to do with us taking the time to try to see through it. A number of critics have, have uh, either explicitly or implicitly recognized that, uh, that Eliot is a ventriloquist. But that doesn't solve the problem because nobody can figure out who the voice belongs to and where it's coming from. Uh, but there's clearly, when you, when you read his poems, you, you get this haunting sense of a voice in the room. And, uh, and, and then, of course, in, particularly in a poem like Wasteland, which we'll spend some time on, it, it becomes uh, something of a major literary industry to try to track down the, you know, the source of that haunting voice. Uh, Hugh Kenner, who wrote an essay on uh, Eliot that's, uh, I think, insightful, picks up on that on something of that idea, and he he says that the, uh, the, one of the peculiar features of Eliot's poetry is that it activates a voice inside the reader. And he says this, To an un unusual degree, then, the reader takes possession of an Eliot poem or suffers it to take possession of him. That is That is why thinking or discoursing about it comes so much to resemble the process of self-scrutiny. That is also why so many of the essays and articles which mean to be accounts of Eliot's poetry are actually drafts for the essayist's autobiography. And why hostile accounts pulsate with such vehemence, recording as they do the struggle of newly mobilized antibodies to repel an invader which has lodged itself in the very capillaries of the sensibility. Isn't that wonderful language? Well, it holds out hope, too, you see, because the implicit in what Kenner is saying is that is that Eliot is contagious, that not only has Eliot uh, himself done the work of returning vitality to the perceptual nerve ending, but that in, he's, he has put it in language that, that awakens that same quality in his attentive readers. So we would like to have some of that happen to us uh, here as we go through it and as we read it at home and think about it. In his 1929 essay on Dante, he said of Dante's poetry, genuine poetry can communicate before it is understood. And I think the same thing can be said of Eliot's poetry, and it's a good thing that it can, <laughs> because, <laughs> because understanding it is another task altogether. But experiencing it is possible prior to the understanding. Experiencing it is what provides us with the stamina for doing what it takes to understand it. And it's circular, because the more we understand it, the more it communicates. And the more it communicates, the more we're willing to make the effort in understanding. And the more we understand it, the more it communicates. So it's a circular process. The metaphor that came to me about Eliot's poetry, it actually comes to me about any poetry, but I was thinking about Eliot, is uh, that Eliot has taken, has taken a good deal of time and a good deal of very meticulous effort to, to make a kite that will fly. And he has tied a colorful tail on to it and uh, the string. And he has taken the time to uh, run the full length of the field to get it up in the air. And then he has handed us the string. And uh, he's now long gone and it's in our hands. Now, there are only two things we can do with it. Well, first of all, we can pray for wind. Uh, because without wind, there's nothing, nothing will happen. But given wind, the panuma, see, the spirit, uh, there's only t there are two things we can do. We can let out the string or pull it in. And uh, both have value. And so occasionally, we'll wind it in, get a little closer, take a closer look at it, analyze it a little bit, try to come to that understanding, and then we'll let it back out again and let it take the wind and get up higher in the sky and dance around up there. And then we get a little more curious, we'll reel it back in and think about it, analyze it, try to understand it, and then back out again. So uh, to do that, all because Eliot has 
made it, uh, you know, made it possible for this thing to be happening. And all the while, as Kenner says, we will be studying ourselves. Be a, an elaborate self-scrutiny, but not just ourselves, also our culture, which to which we are intimately spiritually bound up. In the same essay, Hugh Kenner says, Eliot's work, as he once noted of Shakespeare's, is, in important respects, one continuous poem. So I brought some poems along today, um, just three poems I want us to take a look at from his early work. They're not the earliest, uh, but they, I think they'll provide us with, a, with a, an introduction to what he's doing. Eliot uh, wrote something later on called the Five Finger Exercises, the implication being that these are these are little training sessions, uh, technique. I think in these early poems, there's something like that. And what's, what he's training is his perception. If the apocalypse of Eliot is brought about not with a bang but a whimper, it is because it, is, it has developed the perception to see through the veil and to see it for the, for the weakening, slackening, dissolving reality that it really is and to see through it. And that takes developing one's sensibility so that one has to have the eyes that can see and the ears that can hear. And that takes a little fine-tuning. And I think that's maybe what's going on in these early, early poems of, of Eliot. The first two are the poems uh, Cousin Nancy and, and Helen um, indicate some relationship to the poet so we want to uh, pay attention to those uh, because of that. And uh, in the first one, that's underscored because uh, Cousin Nancy's last name is Ellicott. So we have Miss Nancy Ellicott. Miss Nancy Ellicott strode across the hills and broke them. Rode across the hills and broke them. The barren New England hills. Riding to hounds over the cow pasture. Miss Nancy Ellicott smoked and danced all the modern dances. Her aunts were not quite sure how they felt about it, but they knew that it was modern. Upon the glazing shelves kept watch Matthew and Waldo, guardians of the faith, the army of unalterable law. Eliot is writing this um, in the first quarter of this century. And uh, he's not interested in Miss Nancy, except that Miss Nancy is himself and his generation. He's interested in the life of the spirit and the cultural life that provides the, the context for the life of the spirit. And he's interested in paradoxes. It all gets boiled down to what Moses said. I put before you life and death. Choose you therefore life. And as we've said in the past, it's uh, untutored choices tend to become uh, educational opportunities, but not they, they aren't they, they're very unlikely to produce uh, immediate happiness. Untutored choices. That is to say, it's so paradoxical. Uh, often the attempt to choose life turns out to have been uh, turns out to have been a, a choosing of something considerably less lively than life. So Miss Nancy Ellicott. Notice the boldness of Miss Nancy. She's uh, the first in this first stanza. She's in a sense returning to nature, but with still the dominant. She strode across the hills and broke them. She rode across the hills and broke them, and the hills are barren, New England hills, riding to hounds over the cow pasture, going back to hunting from farming. But coming to what, really? Miss Nancy Ellicott smoked and danced all the modern dances. One can think of the modern dances here not so much as a dance, but as any of the trends, see, whatever the trend is. In other words, she did what was in. Her aunts were not quite sure how they felt about it, but they knew that it was modern. Now, the fact that it was modern, you see, was 
what made their, the ants feel that they had no resources with which to judge it. In other words, something had come along which the tradition that these ants had received felt sufficiently intimidated by that it chose not to comment on it. And that may be, of course, because the tradition that they had received was itself so weakened and emaciated that the dances looked like life compared to it. And so they didn't quite understand it, but they knew somehow that it was modern. That meant, therefore, nothing in their experience was, was capable of commenting on it intelligibly. So that's the situation being pictured. The first stanza is to is the return to nature in the sense of going back. The second stanza is going forward, progress, modern. First stanza, Miss Nancy is alone out in the nature. The second stanza, she's in the crowd dancing. And that's the simple few lines of the poem summarized this way. Upon the glazing shelves, kept watch, Matthew and Waldo, guardians of the faith, the army of unalterable law. seems to me he's talking about Matthew Arnold and Waldo Emerson, the British and American counterparts of the generation prior to his, representing the best efforts that that generation had made to rejuvenate and rearticulate the tradition for its contemporary assimilation. And Miss Nancy is blissfully innocent of anything they or their generation did. It has come to nothing. It sits on the shelves. Guardians of the faith, the army of unalterable law. And it's dead on the shelf. The ants, who can't quite warm up to all this smoking and dancing, have nothing, nothing of real vitality to counter it with. And Miss Nancy knows nothing more vital than what than the than the uh, striding across the hills and breaking them, and the smoking and dancing. So, well, I think it's an early poem, but I think what Eliot is picturing here is a tiny little vignette in the in an overall cultural picture: the collapse of the uh, the drying up, the evisceration of a really vital culture, and the, a, a generation beginning to opt for what seems vital. And as we read the next two poems, we can see uh, whether it is or not. So let's go to Aunt Helen. Take a little more time with Aunt Helen. The first thing to notice about Aunt Helen, well, let me just, we're supposed to communicate before we understand it, and we may not understand, but let's try to get it communicated. Miss Helen Slingsby was my maiden aunt and lived in a small house near a fashionable square, cared for by servants to the number of four. Now when she died, there was silence in heaven and silence at her end of the street. The shutters were drawn and the undertaker wiped his feet. He was aware that this sort of thing had occurred before. The dogs were handsomely provided for. But shortly afterwards, the parrot died too. The Dresden clock continued ticking on the mantelpiece, and the footman sat upon the dining table, holding the second housemaid on his knee, who had always been so careful while, while her mistress lived. Now, this is minimalist poetry, you see. This is minimalist poetry. But what he's what has gone into the writing of this poetry is an enormous amount of understanding and wisdom and insight and perception. And there's a lot of wit and, you know, funny. The first thing we can say about Aunt Helen is that her name is Helen. And Helen is the symbol of that most beautiful and tragic of women, the woman who, uh, who was the provoker of ardor, passion, war, intrigue, and destroyer of civilizations, right? 
So here's Elliot, um, in a sense, with a pox on both your houses. Uh, the first is the tradition. Here's Aunt Helen. And uh, she's a maiden aunt living in a small house near a fashionable square with four servants. So she's she, she's the, you know, the great-granddaughter of a former uh, grand house, so to speak. I mean, you know, none of that, you don't know any of that, but you get this, you know, living comfortably but in a smaller house, but in a nice neighborhood, but a maiden aunt. And this, he's not interested in somebody that, he's interested in the culture. And he's describing a cultural decline. The, or the world doesn't end with a bang but a whimper. So it's that kind of a process. And when she died, there was silence in heaven, not rejoicing. Silence. And silence at her end of the street, which is a nice little twist, just at her end of the street implying that it didn't even make it down the block, you see. The shutters were drawn and the undertaker wiped his feet. Now, I want to come back to this in a minute, but I think the undertaker is T.S. Eliot. And I think this is Eliot's signature on this in this poem. I didn't come to praise Caesar, but to bury him, so to speak. But the touch that is uh, I, I love here is that he says he wiped his feet and the next line is, he was aware that this sort of thing had occurred before. And Eliot certainly was aware that uh, cultures had died in the past. And so he shows some, he takes some care with, with handling the situation. He wipes his feet out of deference to the tradition that has died. The dogs were handsomely provided for. This gets a little bit uh, vicious almost. I'm, I'm, it's not, I don't think it's... Uh, I'm providing provocations. Now, this is—I don't mean to say this is what the poem means, but it seems to me that there, the implication here is that there is still, at this point, there is enough residual largesse so that even unconscious creatures are uh, beneficiaries of it. But shortly afterwards, the parrot died too. Now, see, the parrot would be that which commits the tradition to rote memorization and can live on for a while afterward, repeating its phrases. But then it dies too. So there's a period of time, you see, when it seems to have survived, but before long the parrot will die. The Dresden clock continued ticking on the mantelpiece. Now this is a wonderful thing, you see. The technological achievements have the most lasting capacity. The Dresden clock continues ticking on the mantelpiece. And so there's certain pride in, well, by golly, here's something that will last. But notice at this point in the poem, the distinct, this, this comes to the question of being able to communicate without understanding it, even without getting into all this stuff we're talking about. When you get to this line in the poem, when you find out that the Dresden clock continues to tick on the mantelpiece, you, you feel it's ticking ominously, I think. The Dresden clock continues to tick on the mantelpiece. One doesn't want to celebrate the triumph of technology when you read that line. Uh, it ticks on, but now it's ticking like the doomsday clock. It's ticking away. See? Now, what happens? When that happened, well, we have to reinvent the wheel, so to speak. And the footman and the second housemaid begin reinventing the wheel. And the footman sat upon the dining table, holding the second housemaid on his knee, who had always been so careful while her mistress lived. Elliot is, I think, worthy of our attention because he... He's not fighting the last war. That is to say, if you look back at his generation, most of his generation would look at this scene. And the first thing they would do is recognize the impotence of the culture that was passing. Eliot looked at what appeared to be the vitality that was replacing it and saw it as impotent. 
So that's where he is a little more serviceable for us than some of his contemporaries. He is the undertaker here. The old cultural configuration simply is lacks the vitality to provide what the world needs. Uh, but so he's doing, I think, the undertaker's work in his early poems. And I think we have to appreciate that. But he's also uh, making the point that what appears to be the alternate route to vitality is another route to impotence. And that's where he's uh, valuable for us. I want to take up this theme of Undertaker for a second. George is a Stanford scholar, and uh, he has uh, sponsored a uh, bold and audacious new interpretation of the Western tradition. And in in a in a colloquy with some of his uh, with his peers, uh, one of them, uh, Jean Michel Orgulian, says to Girard, "The complete disintegration of the mechanisms of culture." and the global expansion of modern society can be seen, according to you, as the unique vocation of this society. That is to say, the complete disintegration of the mechanisms of culture. As a historical challenge without precedent, one that has come to involve the whole of humanity. And Girard responds, I am fully in favor of the major liquidation of philosophy and the sciences of man that is currently taking place. The grave digger's work is necessary. That's what Eliot is doing in his early poem. The grave digger's work is necessary. For what is being buried is truly dead, even if there is too much ceremony. There is no need to exaggerate the task and make the undertaker the prototype of all future cultural life. We ought to let the dead bury the dead and move on to other things. Eliot is perfect for the job in that he buries them not with the cavalier slap on the back, now we're free again sort of nonsense of some of the people trying to do this undertaker's work, but he buries them in a sense grieving for what the world is left to without them. So he buries them with a very long face, but he buries them because they're dead. And then he has to go through, in a sense, goes through the mourning period and trying to understand where might that uh, a suitable replacement come from. So let's take a look at Sweeney Among the Nightingales. I'll read it through, and then, uh, then we'll go back and think about it a little bit. First of all, I've translated, uh, Eliot has it in the, in the Greek, but I've translated the passage from Aeschylus, which is the epigraph to the poem, Alas, I have been smitten deep with mortal blow. Sweeney among the nightingale. Ape-necked Sweeney spreads his knees, letting his arms hang down to laugh. The zebra stripes along his jaw, swelling to maculate giraffe. The circles of the stormy moon slide westward toward the river plate. Death and the raven drift above, and Sweeney guards the horned gate. Gloomy Orion and the dog are veiled, and hushed the shrunken seas. The person in the Spanish cape tries to sit on Sweeney's knee. Slips and pulls the tablecloth, overturns a coffee cup. Reorganized upon the floor, she yawns and draws a stocking up. The silent man in mocha brown sprawls at the windowsill and gapes. The waiter brings in oranges, bananas, figs, and hothouse grape. The silent vertebrate in brown contracts and concentrates withdraws. Rachel Ney Robinovich tears at the grapes with murderous paws. She and the lady in the cape are suspect, thought to be in league. Therefore, the man with heavy eyes declines the gambit, shows fatigue, leaves the room and reappears outside the window, leaning in, branches of wisteria circumscribe a golden grin. The host, with someone indistinct, converses at the door apart. The nightingales are singing near the convent of the Sacred Heart. 
and sang within the bloody wood when Agamemnon cried aloud and let their liquid siftings fall to stain the stiff, dishonored shroud. Well, those last six lines, uh, the, the transition in the middle of the, of the seconds of the last uh, quatrain reminds me of that thing that uh, Owen Barfield said. Owen Barfield said, the poetic experience is, is like the feeling you get the pit of your stomach when the elevator very quickly goes from one floor to the other. And the only way to have it is to do it again. And uh, between the first two and the second two lines of that quatrain just before the last one, we get that experience. The host with someone indistinct converses at the door apart. The nightingales are singing near the convent of the Sacred Heart. And the shift between two worlds could not be more radical. But let's go back and uh, work a little bit with the poem. Let's start with nightingales. Here's a little scene, the beginning of, uh, I think, scene five in act three of Romeo and Juliet. Uh, this is really the morning after their glorious uh, consummation of their secret marriage. And uh, Romeo and Juliet's love, you see, the background to the love is a, is a, is a social configuration which has blocked their desire for each other, namely their, the warring family. But they have somehow gotten around that, and now they have consummated their marriage. Uh, but immediately after the consummation, we have uh, the return of, in a way, the romantic formula. He says, I've got to go, and she says, why don't you stay? Uh, there is a tension that is reintroduced, and is played, at, played out with regard to the nightingale. Juliet, wilt thou be gone? It is not yet near day. It was the nightingale and not the lark that pierced the fearful hollow of thine ear. Nightly she sings on yon pomegranate tree. Believe me, love, it was the nightingale. In other words, the nightingale sings at night. He hears the, the, the bird song. She says, no, it was the nightingale, not the lark. He says, it's the lark. It's morning. I got to go. If I'm caught here, it's the end of me. He's in... He's in her family's home. Romeo says, It was the lark, the herald of the morn, no nightingale. Look, love, what envious streaks do lace the severing clouds in yonder east. Night's candles are burnt out, and jocund day stands tiptoe on the misty mountain tops. I must be gone and live or stay and die. Uh, maybe I better do some of this as we go through. Nightly she sings on the pomegranate tree. The pomegranate grows from the blood of, Dion of the slain Dionysus. It's, the, it's a, one of the famous symbols of fertility. And the nightingale sings on the pomegranate tree and sings all night long. So we know as long as the nightingale's singing, it's still nighttime. And the rituals, the fertility rituals, they can continue. But Romeo says, no, it's the lark. It's the lark. The lark sings at dawn. He says to Juliet, Look, love, what, notice the language, what envious streaks do lace the severing clouds in yonder east. Notice the two words, envious and severed. He's talking about the rising of the sun in the east. The envious streaks do lace the cloud, do lace the severing clouds in yonder east. The night's candles are burnt out. Romeo is saying, it is now daytime, and we must deal with the daytime. And Juliet says, no, it is still night, and that's the nightingale. Juliet says, yon light is not daylight, I know it, I. It is some meteor that the sun exhales to, to be to thee this night a torchbearer and light thee on thy way to Mantua. Therefore, stay yet, thou needest not be gone. And Romeo says, let me be tamed, let me be put to death. I am content, so thou wilt have it so. I'll stay, excuse me, I'll say yon gray is not the morning's eye. Tis but the pale reflex of Cynthia's brow, Cynthia's the moon, 
nor that is not the lark whose notes do beat the vaulty heavens so high above our heads. I have more care to stay than will to go. Come, death, and welcome. Juliet wills it so. How is it, my soul? Let's talk. It is not day. So she's, he says, okay, if you say it's not day, it's not day. I'm going to call it nighttime. It starts out, he says, I got to go. She says, you got to stay. In the middle, he says, okay, I'll stay. So what's going to happen? She says, it is, it is. High hints, be gone away. It is the lark that sings so out of tune, straining harsh discords and unpleasing sharps. You see, this is the romantic double bind. This is desire's great self-contradiction. It is the lark that sings so out of tune, straining harsh discords and unpleasing sharps. Some say the lark makes sweet division. She means melodies, the division of notes. Some say the lark makes sweet division. This doth not so, for she divideth us. Daytime. Some say the lark and loathed toad change eyes. That's an old folk uh, suspicion that the, that the ugly eye of the toad and the beautiful eye of the lark, have ch- they've, they've swapped. Some say the, lo- the lark and loathed toad changed eyes. Oh, now I would they had changed voices too, since arm from arm that voice doth us affray, hunting thee hence with hunt-ups to the day, now, oh, excuse me, oh, now be gone. More light and light it grows. Romeo says, more light and light, more dark and dark our woes. The sun is coming up on the day after. Well, we're not here to talk about Romeo and Juliet, but desire configured by a social prohibition. That's one Nightingale reference. There's another one. And we bring both into play here. An Athenian king has two daughters, Procne and Philomela. The king of Thrace took Procne as his wife and had a son by her. But he fell in love with her sister, Philomela. So he cut out Procne's tongue and put her in the slave quarter and told the, her father that she had died. And so her father gave this king of Thrace the hand of his daughter, Philomela. So they were to be married, but he raped Philomela before the marriage. And Procne sent to Philomela a, uh, a marriage garment she had woven, and in the weaving of it told the story of her fate. So Procne and Philomela conspire to uh, avenge the, themselves on this king of Thrace who has cut the tongue out of one of them and raped the other one. And they avenged themselves by cooking his son and serving it to him on, for dinner. He seizes an axe and tries to kill them, and the gods intervene and change Procne into a swallow and Philomela into a nightingale. The nightingale is associated from the very beginning with passion, triangles, triangular passion, see what I mean? Murder, revenge, sacrifice, cannibalism, what more could you want? But it also has this lovely sense of being the bird that sings all night, uh, allows the fertility rituals to go on. So Sweeney among the nightingale. Clearly, the second one is partly implied by Eliot because he uses that quote from Aeschylus about Agamemnon. Agamemnon, as you know, uh, sacrificed his daughter, Iphigenia, for favorable winds to the Trojan War, and then he, in turn, was killed by his wife, Clytemnestra, when he came home. Ape neck Sweeney spreads his knees. Now, there's a number of things you can do with your knees. Uh, You can fall down on them. Ape neck Sweeney spreads them letting his arms hang down to laugh. The first picture you get of uh, Aeneas in the Aeneid, in book one, it says, in the middle of a storm, at once Aeneas's limbs fall slack with chill. Now, what does Aeneas do? 
He groans and stretches both hands to the star and prays for help. Apex Sweeney, on the other hand, <laughs> lets his fall down and laugh. The zebra stripes along his jaw, swelling to maculate giraffe. Maculate means spotty. So already we're back in uh, an African setting. Ape neck, zebra, giraffe. That's the cradle of Homo sapiens, is Africa. Sweeney is a, is a throwback, is an evolutionary throwback who has emerged into the modern world unaffected by the cultural resources that may have been provided to, to uh, ages before his. Here is Homo sapiens in the buff, Sweeney. The circles of the stormy moon slide westward toward the river plate. Death and the raven drift above, and Sweeney guards the horned gate. Uh, the river here is... is uh, the river between Uruguay and Argentina, which is the River Plata, but called in English often the River Plate, something sliding westward toward the River Plate. Think appetite. Think of a slide into the appetite. Plata means silver or money. It's another word for money. So, sliding toward a purely materialistic cultural order. Death and the raven drift above, and Sweeney guards the horned gate. The horned gate in the, in the Aeneid, there are two gates that, separate, that connect the world of the shades and the world of the, the living ones. The, the ivory gate is for, the, is for false dreams, and the, horn, and the gate of horn is for the true shades to pass through. But Sweeney is guarding that one. So nothing but false dreams are going to be allowed to come into Sweeney's world because he's got, he's got his guard up at the gate of truth the true sh where the true shades might pass through. And the whole of the Western world is sliding toward appetite. Gloomy Orion and the dogger veil and hushed the shrunken sea. Orion uh, was chasing after the Pleiades uh, in lust, and Zeus, I think it was, made him into a constellation, and Orion is made into a constellation that chases right after them, and Sirius, the dog star, is Orion's constant companion. But what you get with the gloomy Orion and the dog are veiled. The reason they're veiled is because to look up at Orion would be to see the, the fruitlessness, the futility of the, of the lust chase. That is to say, Centuries pass, and Orion doesn't get any closer to the Pleiades. They just constantly make that uh, chase across the sky. So that's hidden. That's veiled. The truth of that has to be veiled so that Sweeney can have a good time. He can't allow that to impinge on his worldview because it would do it severe damage. Gloomy Orion and the dog are veiled and hushed the shrunken seat. The person in the Spanish cape tries to sit on Sweeney's knee. We're in a bordello. This poem is taking place in the bordello. The person in the Spanish cape slips and pulls the tablecloth, overturns a coffee cup, reorganized upon the floor. That's a nice word, reorganized upon the floor. She yawns and draws a stocking up. The yawn is absolutely essential to this. You see, Miss Nancy surely thought it was vitality itself. And the footman and the second housemaid surely thought it was vitality itself. But when we allow the thing to run its full course, the, the ennui begins to make itself visible. Now, something else comes into the scene. So far, we have Sweeney and the, and the woman in the cape. When we just have Sweeney and the woman in the cape, what we're getting is a tedium, boredom, somnolence, 
yawning. A bordello is a place where anything goes. There are no, if you allow me just to characterize it this way, there are no rules here, you see. If Aunt Helen's end of the street is, is one end of the spectrum, the locale for Sweeney among the Nightingales is the other end of the spectrum. There are no rules here. Anything goes. But the problem with the world where anything goes is that there is no passion because passion requires barriers, taboos, frustrations, prohibitions. And so the woman in the Spanish cape is sitting on the floor yawning. So notice what happens. Another figure is introduced. A, the silent man in Mocha Brown sprawls, another indication of the, the uh, lack of energy, sprawls at the windowsill and gapes. Now we get this guy leering on this scene. And then there's another feature introduced. The waiter brings in oranges, bananas, figs, and hothouse grapes. These, I think, are clear sexual images. Tropical fruits, but all of them with the kind of sexual overtones. So the first one is the silent man in mocha brown sprawls at the windowsill and gapes. The next uh, stanza starts, the silent vertebrate in brown contracts, concentrates, withdraws. He, he's, he's, he himself has regressed right before our very eyes. He's now just a vertebrate. Contracts, concentrates, withdraws. I think there's a sexual image there as well. But what I think is most important is the turn that the poem has taken. It has turned from the object of sexual desire to the rival. In other words, the real tension in the poem is not the tension between the desiring one and the one desired. There is no tension there because anything goes. The tension that is created is now the tension between Sweeney and this possible rival who's gaping. Girard says, modern people still fondly imagine that their discomfort and unease is a product of the straitjacket that religious taboos, cultural prohibitions, and in our day, even the legal forms of protection guaranteed by the judiciary system place upon desire. It's a long sentence. You get that, though? Modern people still think... Okay, I'll, I'll cut out a lot of the middle stuff. Modern people still fondly imagine that their discomfort and unease is a product of the straitjacket that taboos and prohibitions have placed upon desire. They think that once this confinement is over, desire will be able to blossom forth. Its wonderful innocence will finally be able to bear fruit. None of this comes true. A little parenthesis here. Girard indicates that the, the elite will be the last people to let us know about this but for the following reason. He says, even the most daring thinkers nowadays, this, by the way, does not apply to Eliot, but it applies largely to his uh, contemporary. Even the most daring thinkers nowadays do not dare to recognize that prohibition has a protective function with regard to the conflicts inevitably pro provoked by desire. They would be afraid that people might see them as reactionary, and people did regard Eliot as reactionary. In the currents of thought that have dominated us for a century, there is one tendency we must never forget, the fear of being regarded as naive or submissive, the desire to play at being the freest thinker, the most radical, etc. As long as you pander to this desire, you can make the modern intellectual say almost anything you like. And then Girard goes on. To the extent that desire does away with the external obstacles that traditional society ingenuous, ingenuously established to keep it from spreading, that is, the structural obstacle, like rules of decorum, moral configurations of one kind or another, to the extent that it does away with that, Girard said, the living obstacle of the rival can very advantageously, or rather disadvantageously, take the place of the prohibition that no longer holds. In the Eliot's poem, it is the silent man in mocha brown, or the silent vertebrate in brown. And so the poem, which ought, we think ought to be, have to do with this 
electricity going on between the man and the woman, in fact, turns its energy in this other direction. The real energy then begins to take place. The real focus of the poem is on this strange kind of relationship that only happens in the presence of the triangle. Because the triangle presents the substitute for a prohibition. The only available obstacle in a bordello, which is a place without obstacle. So what's created is what Girard calls the mimetic rivalry. The silent vertebrate in brown concentrates, contracts, withdraws. Rachel Ney Rabinovich tears at the grapes with murderous paws. This is another commentary. Rachel is the biblical epitome. The story of Rachel is the biblical epitome of patient love, ardor, attraction. Jacob works seven years for Rachel's hand. He's tricked by his father-in-law Laban into taking Leah as his wife. He works another seven for Rachel. That Count them, 14 years for Rachel. See, that's all now old hat. Rachel Ney Rabinovich tears at the grapes with murderous paws. She and the lady in the cape are suspects, thought to be in league. Therefore, the man with heavy eyes declines the gambit shows fatigue. So Gambit is a chess move, you see. So it's now become a little a little game. Leaves the room and reappears outside the window, leaning in, branches of wisteria circumscribe a golden grin. And I think we have to read that golden grin as being very ominous. The host with someone indistinct converses at the door apart. And the panorama is the nightingales are singing at the convent of the Sacred Heart and sang within the bloody wood when Agamemnon cried aloud and let their liquid siftings fall to stain the stiff, dishonored trap. All of the implications of the nightingale come at the very end and they all have to do with victimization. A victim will be required. The situation has in it the demand for a victim. Somebody will die. Somebody will have to die. The nightingales are singing. It's, Sweeney is completely oblivious to that dimension of this little version of it that he is living out. He and his associates are reenacting the primal scene perfectly. 